Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm Anoush. And I'm Zoe. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're talking about the challenges facing children in the UK and the role of the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza. So the reason that we're chatting about this topic today is that Anoush recently interviewed Rachel D'Souza for The New Statesman. It's an absolutely fantastic interview. It's in last week's magazine under the headline, A Wounded Generation. But reading it got us all thinking about the different challenges facing children in the UK, from education to mental health to social media, and even the situation with refugees and child migrants and who exactly is looking after them. So we thought it would be worth actually drilling down into what this role is about, what Rachel D'Souza does, and why her job was so important. So Anish, you visited a school to meet her. What was that like? And what is it that she actually does as children's commissioner? So as children's commissioner, she basically has to stand up for the rights of children in England. This is because there's not really any specific sort of government department that has a responsibility for children. And so her brief is really broad. It can go from education to online safety, which is something we discussed a lot in the interview, to children who have come here seeking asylum, which we also discussed, and trying to make sure that they're kept safe and they get the best deal. It's sounds really obvious when you put it like that, that there should be somebody whose job it is to look after children in this country. But it's actually relatively recent as a role. It was established by the Children's Act of 2004 and the first Children's Commissioner was appointed in 2005. Um, And Rachel D'Souza is only the fourth person to have held this role. And actually reading about how that all came about, it was in the aftermath of the James Bulger murder, the very tragic case. But lots of charities and campaign groups had been lobbying 130 organizations had been campaigning for the establishment of this kind of office up until that point and it just seems that until the early 2000s no one had really thought that it might be a good idea to have somebody looking after children's interests because you're right there isn't like a government department to deal with that zoe thinking about government departments and ministers and things it's actually a real like cross section, isn't it? Because you've got like education, health, tech, 
housing. I could probably list all the government departments and come up with a way that they relate to children in some ways. The local government, children's homes, Mm. social care. In the Department for Education, we have a minister, I think it's the Minister for children and families who has quite a broad brief of things that does include children but as Anoush said it's not we don't have a specific kind of really key government figure anyone in the cabinet for example who responsibility is looking after children or producing policy that affects children and there has been calls for there to be a specific minister who attends cabinets we saw recently there was the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse and one of the recommendations on the back of that was that there should be someone who attends cabinet because this issue is so huge so widespread and so that there's no real action in place to tackle it but you're right i mean children are humans so every policy area affects them basically and they have very specific needs they don't have a voice they don't have a kind of democratic stake in the same way that adult voters do so they are underrepresented in discourse and that's why you would like somebody who does have a stake to speak for them as you say that it's across education health etc etc but I do think there might be more of a push now for a kind of specific role in cabinet that would see children being represented. And also environment, which I just thought Mm, of. I was accidentally at an Extinction Rebellion demonstration over the weekend, accidentally in the sense that I just stumbled into London and there they all were. And there were loads of people there with kids and families saying that they brought their children there because their children are the ones who are going to have to deal with that. So, yeah, basically every government department. But you, Anish, when you spoke to her, she was chatting to some students and teenagers are kind of about what the challenge is facing them in the UK sort of are at the moment and what key areas was she looking at and is she particularly focused on? We were having a wide ranging chat and she was very adept at this. Clearly she's done hundreds of these kind of conversations with children before, which is part of her role. So she goes not only into schools, but hospitals, mental health units, children's homes, refugee hotels, as we discussed, prisons. And sorry, yes. And she's also a former teacher and a former head teacher as well. So she was obviously very good at getting initially quite shy teenagers to open up and start talking. And once they'd started, they weren't stopping like they were really open with us. And yeah, it was a bit of a free ranging conversation, but they opened up about how the pandemic could affect their mental health some bullying that one of them had been subjected to and especially the pressures of being on social media and how they feel that they ought to look and what their lifestyles ought to be like and also just the simple fact of being on their phones all the time and how it's took them away from playing. Like one of them who said that she was given a smartphone when she was nine said that she would never do that to her own children and that she looks back at her parents' childhoods or how she sees her parents' childhoods might have been and that they were always playing outside whereas she was always on her phone. And they all, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect this for teenagers. Some of them had their smartphones on their laps while we were talking, but they were basically saying how they felt that it wasn't great that they had this technology from such a young age and that it had affected how they felt about themselves and how they relate to the world. That's a big part of D'Souza's brief. So when she came in March 2021, one of her first things was to look into online harms, how they affect children. And the first companies that she called in to speak to her were the porn sites. But actually, the big issue has been the mainstream social media platforms because you can most children who she's surveyed have said when they do encounter porn online it's through a mainstream sort of site rather than a specific porn site so they've been a lot more difficult to cooperate with and part of her work has been to try and 
bring them into the scope of the online safety bill, but also to try and get them to cooperate with regulating themselves better, which implicitly she said that wasn't happening and that there is now this need for legislation to fine them. But also potentially she talked about criminal responsibility for the harm that's done to children on these platforms. I feel like we've been talking about the online safety bill for <laughs> years. Although when we first started, I think it was called the online harms bill. And it's been through so many iterations. I feel like David Cameron was talking about this. And I, <laughs> that was a very long time ago. And every government has put its new spin on it. Mm. And whatever the problem is online, whether it's harmful content and porn or the Andrew Tate misogyny or content about self-harm and eating disorders... You, you often just hear MPs go, and the, the online safety bill will fix this, whatever this issue yeah. is. Zoe, where are we with that legislation and what has it morphed into at this point? Mm. So you're right, we have been talking about the online safety bill for years. It's first kind of iteration or the first time it was being spoken at a kind of government level was following the suicide of Molly Russell, who was a teenage girl who took her own life after being exposed to self-harm, really severe self-harm content on social media platforms. We've seen various kind of DCMS ministers and secretaries of state look into this. As you say, we had a white paper, online harms white paper. And I don't think the legislation was published until about 2021. And then it didn't actually make it into the Commons till about 2022. So it was about six or seven years of back and forth. The really interesting thing about the Online Safety Bill is, is it has exposed a kind of political battleground, quite an old one for the Conservatives, actually, which is this fight between the sort of paternalistic Conservatives and the sort of more individual liberal Conservatives who believe in kind of personal responsibility and deregulation. And what we've seen is this battleground where People are saying tech providers need to take responsibility for what's on their platforms, but also there's this sense that people should be able to be in control of what they see online. And the internet is a great place because it provides people with all these things that they couldn't otherwise see. So where are we at at the minute? Currently, it's gone through the Commons. And one of the key things that happened when it was going on its journey through the Commons was that the legal but harmful clause, which I think Nadine Dorries had been advocating for, which was basically that material that was legal but harmful so that would be like the self-harm content or kind of material that might be offensive forms of pornography yeah, i guess forms of that pornography it yeah. isn't illegal but you also wouldn't want young people seeing yeah so platforms like youtube and twitter would have to take action on this but that got watered down and they i think eventually they made it so people could opt in or opt out of seeing this kind of content or deciding whether they wanted to be warned about this kind of content and it has been very confusing to be honest a lot of people are confused about where we're at with the online safety bill as you say it's taken so many iterations. Currently it's in the Lords, I think it's in its committee stage and at this point we're seeing various Lords table various amendments to it. One of them is on age verification so they want to see age verification measures on certain platforms and obviously that's to do with protecting children from harmful content. I think the thing that the online safety bill really throws up in the way of children and the difficulties it presents is again this line when does content for example about eating healthy eating become eating disorder content and then when does it become self-harm content when does bullying and harassment between children online become a criminal offence or something that the police should step in with so there are all these kind of political or ethical issues around the online safety bill as well as the kind of technical ones which are just like how do we actually make twitter do this thing, put in these measures. It's not really a surprise the online safety bill has taken this long. It's an innovative piece of legislation. We haven't seen much like it before, but it's also really politically and technically contentious. Yeah, and there's also an argument within 
the Conservative Party, actually within Labour as well, about the extent to which you should rely on the tech companies or on tech regulation to solve these issues. And obviously you want them, you want the platforms to cooperate, but how much of it you also have to match with better education and and support. Earlier this year, I interviewed someone from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, which is a think tank that looks at radicalisation and extremism. And he focused on online extremism. And his point was that it would be great to get the tech firms moderating their content. But you've got to look at education as well. And you've got to look at how you can teach kids to process what they see online. You can't rely on just blocking them from seeing it online. So he called it inoculation, I guess, like lessons at school in this is the kind of content you might experience, you might encounter. How could you tell if it's genuine? How can you tell if this person offering you advice actually has your best interests at heart? This may sound very compelling, these Andrew Tate style figures. Here's how you can respond to that. Or here's some porn that you might see and here's some things that you need to learn about porn. Obviously, that's quite controversial. But I guess what this kind of comes down to is an understanding that children exist in our society holistically and you can't rely on any one department or one aspect like tech regulation to fix all of those problems. And I guess, Anoush, that's what the Office of the Children's Commissioner is there for, although it doesn't really have any legal powers, does it? Or specific enforcement she does, so she does have some powers under the Children Act to request information. So mm. that's what part of the interview, sort of something that she gave us, which she hadn't given elsewhere, was this letter that she sent to Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, mm. using her powers under the Children Act to request information that otherwise you wouldn't be able to request about, in this case, about who exactly the children are who are coming across the channel on small boats and what happens to them once they get here, basically. So I think she's trying to build a picture, really, of who they are and how the UK government treats them, which could potentially throw up some quite controversial Results. So, yeah, she does have that power. I didn't get to include it in the piece, but really her main power is that of influence and trying to influence ministers is particularly difficult in a position like hers because you've got to keep them on side. So she can't speak out about everything. And that has led to some criticism, particularly from of the government, the wider left, that she is perhaps close to the Conservatives. She was appointed in 2021 under Johnson's government. She was an academy head. Michael Gove said he wished that he could clone her 23,000 times when she was a head teacher. So she was... That's she a was, bit disturbing. Yeah, she was talking about how she felt a bit frustrated about being pigeonholed in that kind of category of education figures. There's a bit of an education culture war in the UK and she was put on the side of the reformers. But at the same time, I can imagine somebody looking at the stuff that she's been saying looking at your interview and her interventions elsewhere and associating her with being part of the woke blob like she's calling on tech firms to regulate their content she's calling on and we'll talk about this in a bit more detail in a moment but the home secretary to put children's needs at the heart of immigration policy or at least consider what happens to those children and she's spoken out about mental health and child mental Mm. health like these are all issues where 
you can see some culture warriors on the right going, oh, she's part of the woke elite protecting the snowflake students. Yeah. So it's it must be a really difficult balancing act. Yeah, well, she I put this to her because I was like, people get put in camps, traditionalist or progressive in the education world, particularly head teachers. You often get these head teachers that are the country's strictest head teacher and that kind of thing. And, and then a backlash towards their measures. She was very much a head teacher, perhaps in that mould. She's famous for sending a minibus around town to get tr- children out of bed and into school. She got school uniforms designed by a Savile Row tailor at one of her schools. So she was seen in that kind of vein. But she described herself to me as progressive because of all the things that you've just listed. And so I think she's probably played quite a clever game because I think that she has buy-in from the ministers that she has to influence. But at the same time is able to be quite robust in what she has to say about how the state is failing children. To me, I think obviously it is a difficult balance, but she seems to be striking it from what she told me about her work. But it is essentially a position of just influence rather than political power. So it is tough. But just on those tech companies, she sounded positive about the direction of the legislation, but she did sound quite exasperated by the tech company. She basically said, because she met them every six months, I think from up until late last year, she was meeting them every six months together in these round tables. And I said, what did you learn from the process? And I think she said something like, it just showed me why legislation is so necessary. And I was like, is that because they're not going to regulate themselves? And she was like, yes, essentially. Mm. So she said they're aware of the negative impact they're having on children. And she would hope to see more responsibility and more seriousness from them, which suggests that they're not particularly cooperative. After the break, we'll discuss the challenges facing children's mental health in this country and how the Children's Commissioner is worried about migrant children. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So let's talk a bit more about that letter that she wrote to Swella Braverman and the context for it. So far, we've been focusing very much on British children or kind of issues in British schools. But actually, as Children's Commissioner, she's responsible for all the children in this country, which includes some who may have come here via undocumented routes across the channel and who are waiting for asylum cases to be heard or for their status to be confirmed. And haven't we lost some. That's a horrifying thing to say. But there there are missing children now because they have been left in hotels that neither local police forces nor the Home Office seem to take responsibility for. 
Yeah, I mean, she she said that she's visited children who are staying in these asylum hotels, which have become a bit of a lightning rod issue anyway in UK politics recently. And she said they're no place for children, particularly not traumatised children. Mm-hmm. And most of these children who have had to take these routes are, of course, traumatised because they've had to escape. Yeah, and actually there are reports that children have not only gone missing, but they've also been exploited in some of these places because they don't have the safeguards around them that they would usually have. And she was saying this is part of the reason why she's requesting this extra information about who they are and what happens to them because she wants to know exactly what state they're in when they come to this country, why they've come, where they've come from, but also what ha- what services are allocated to them when they get here, what they're referred to and why. Because at the moment, this illegal migration bill, she believes, will make traffickers even bolder because they won't have to worry about social worker interference or the child being offered support from anywhere. Because the idea of the illegal migration bill is to take away people's asylum rights. And she said, you're almost certainly going to be walking into the hands of criminal gangs because there's nowhere for you to go as a child once you get to this country. So... She's been very openly critical about it and went one step further when she spoke to us for this piece. And as far as I know, Suella Braverman has not met her to discuss what she's asked in this letter, though they have met with Home Office officials. So perhaps she will get some of the answers that she wants. But she made the point that as a compassionate modern society, we should be looking after these children, all children. And actually, her mum was a refugee. She came from a Bavarian orphanage in the 50s to the UK and was brought up by Eastern European family members who had come over to the UK. So she has her own personal family story as well that I think means that it's an issue close to her heart. The child refugee stuff is really shocking. I am almost surprised that it's not on the front pages every single day, the fact that we've lost children to criminal gangs here because the people who have a duty to look after them just haven't been. And then in a way you're you're not surprised because the rhetoric, at least from that wing of the Conservative Party, is that they're probably not children anyway. Maybe they're adults pretending to be children or even if they are children, they shouldn't have come over here. Zoe, like you've been covering the Conservative Party. You'd think that there'd be some concern even among the most hardline anti-immigration Tories that we're kind of failing in this duty of care. Are we seeing any of that? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've seen between Labour and the Conservatives this kind of crime arms race in the lead up to local elections where both of them are trying to outcrime each other on who's tougher on various issues. And one thing that is certainly going to affect voters like nothing else is crimes against children. And as you say, you know, we just heard from Anoush, Richard D'Souza says the illegal immigration bill could potentially put more children into the hands of criminal gangs. That's a really terrifying thing. And you're right, you think that's something that would stoke up fury amongst the electorate. But, you know, again, we're seeing this kind of waging of culture wars. And I think the rhetoric around, as you were saying, are these children even children? I remember I saw, I think it was a Guardian article about the number of children who had been exploited by criminal gangs since coming over to the UK. And there was this kind of question, well, they're 15. Is that really a child? They're 15, 16. Yes, they are still legally children. We can see this rhetoric where it takes away their childhood. We've seen it with other issues as well. So the grooming gang policy from Rishi Sunak, where they wanted to stamp down on grooming gangs because this, again, was crimes against children, sexual exploitation against children. And it very much took on a kind of culture war narrative. Really, when we looked into the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse in the UK, grooming gangs was actually just a a part of this wider issue. Actually, 500,000 children a year, this report thinks, are victims of child sexual abuse. That's a huge number and it isn't all grooming gangs. So we do see that even though... 
criminal offences against children are obviously a big deal for the electorate. They're still couched in certain terms that kind of fit with this slight cultural narrative. And certain aspects are being ignored, perhaps because they're expensive or inconvenient. And yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that we've seen with the illegal immigration stuff that they're going to definitely couch it in terms that are kind of more suitable if, yeah. if it's a culture war. Yeah, they care about the victims of grooming gangs, but with the illegal migration bill, they don't seem particularly bothered about the fate of children yeah. who come here yeah. illegally, as they'd put it, or irregularly is the, is the right term. And that's because it's it's not as politically convenient, like Zoe was saying. Grooming gangs obviously work as rhetoric on the right for a bit of a dog whistle about race. And then Labour have done their own kind of exploitation of this idea of child abuse in election campaigning by using that ad suggesting Rishi Sunak doesn't believe in jailing paedophiles. And I did ask Rachel D'Souza about this. She didn't want to comment on the advert, but she quite pointedly said, none of us must forget that we're all role models to children and we should act as such. And she basically said that politicians should be having a fair and serious debate about the issues that affect children's lives rather than using them just as pawns, for, basically. Yeah, as pawns at election time. And let's not forget, Zoe, you made the point earlier, children are humans. But remember, <laughs> children aren't voters. So that's why they always get missed out when you have a run up to an election, apart from being used as mm. a political football. The other issue that I know you spoke to her about and that has been in the news a lot recently is the challenges in children's mental health and particularly getting mental health support for children and adolescents. There have been some sort of horrifying figures lately, which uh, you cite in the interview. New figures from NHS England Mental Health Trust revealing that a third of children's referrals are rejected. And we have been covering for quite some time the impact on children's mental health from the pandemic from lockdowns all the associated anxiety and depression as a result of that and it does seem that the health service is completely unable to cope and that is a massive issue facing particularly adolescents and teenagers at the moment which we're just not really prepared for and ministers don't seem to have an answer to this beyond going yes, it's very serious, we should probably fix it. <laughs> yeah, yes, you lay out the state of the health service, particularly for children's mental health is really, the waiting lists are really scary. And on top of that, the Children's Commission ran its own survey. It was called the Big Ask. It's the biggest ever survey of children apart from the US census. They found that two in five 16 to 17 year old girls were unhappy, which is really, it's, it's a really striking statistic, very sad. And D'Souza made the point, some people say to her, well, isn't it always like that? But she said, no, this is a new trend. It's a step change. And also she'd come across many boys who were very unhappy as well partly as a result of the pandemic, but also all the pressures that we've recently been talking about. It is a crisis, but you're right, there doesn't seem to be a very obvious solution coming from government. Yeah, the recent report from the House magazine showed that in addition to a third of referrals just not getting passed on, children are waiting months to, to be seen by specialists or in some cases years. And you've got some very tragic case stories in there of children who are at risk of self-harm, taking their own lives or eating disorders and, and all of that, just being told you're not quite unwell enough mm. to get treatment. And this is something that actually a lot of experts did see coming with COVID. If you're going to have a pandemic and all of the grief and anxiety and stress of that and lock people up in their homes, a lot of children in vulnerable families being left without any kind of resources, you are going to see an impact in terms of children's mental health. But I guess it's another one of those areas, as with so much of COVID, that we've just pretended that we've dealt with mm -hmm. as a nation when we really haven't. 
again, is there anything that the Children's Commissioner can do about this? It's a big issue for her. And it's interesting because it forms part of the personal journey that she says that she's been on. So she admitted that she herself was someone who had a get an early night attitude to children's well-being when she was a teacher, have some fresh air, that kind of attitude. But she's changed over time, particularly within the role that she's in now and also seeing how children were impacted by lockdowns, to think that it's actually the services around school or the extracurricular thing that schools give that are particularly important to children's happiness. So these children who are missing from school, we haven't talked about them, but the ghost children, she's spoken to some of them and they've said the reason they're not coming back to school is not because they don't want to learn, they do, but they feel inhibited from being able to and the thing that they crave the most is seeing their friends and playing and doing all of the things that are not necessarily the academic things, but the things that she assumed in the past were the softer things, but actually they are crucial to children's happiness. So... I suppose she's been on a bit of a journey and I guess her challenge is to try and bring ministers on that journey too. And like finally, Zoe, do you think there are other areas where it would be helpful to have this kind of voice advocating for people who can't vote, can't advocate for themselves, at least in the political sphere? Are there issues that we should be paying more attention to, but we're not because the people they affect the most don't have a voice. Yeah, I think obviously mental health support in schools. I know that there's some things that Labour have suggested they'd bring in. So mental health counsellor in every school. They're also looking at engaging the youth in their environmental policies. I know when Labour are looking at the criminal justice system, they also want to look at how they can reduce crime in a kind of in its initial stages so more support for young people more youth centers things like that yeah youth Um, clubs came up in our chat actually yeah yeah because often when cuts need to be made cuts will be made to groups that have the least kind of stake in society and as we said children can't vote and can't really voice their concerns so we're seeing schools crumbling i think nine in ten schools in severe financial difficulties and they've got crumbling buildings and not enough teachers etc etc and you know barely see youth clubs anymore children are therefore inside they're on their phones they're being pushed by the algorithms to increasingly consume self-harm material or things like that and also children talk about how their conversations more with their peers are online and they feel less like they can communicate in person and we spoke about lockdown as well so yes I think increasingly we're seeing that children need a voice they need someone to advocate for them it's great that we've got the children's commissioner but hopefully whether we see a minister in every department who has children in their brief or whether we see a cabinet minister who is just the cabinet minister for children who knows and I think Labour increasingly are going to push their early intervention policies early years policies and I'm sure as we've seen the Conservatives will start to think about this as well but it will be interesting to see how the government and politicians respond to these figures that you cited about mental health and the issues that you've raised Anoush. Before we go, we wanted to say that it's very sadly our producer Mae Robson's last podcast with us today. She's moving on to do something very exciting with the BBC in Glasgow, for which we don't blame her because they probably have central heating in their studios there. (laughs) Whereas she's been shivering for far too long in our cold underground bunker. It's probably colder down here than in Glasgow. So, yeah, you're going, going on to better things. And she joined us at the end of September in 2021 and since then has been endlessly patient and good humoured about making us sound a lot more articulate than we are. 
wrangling the big podcast egos of the new statesman to try and get them all in the same place at the same time twice a week, which is no easy feat and has been so creative in choosing guests, particularly the fascinating lineups that we've had on Westminster Reimagined over the years as well. I've also had the joy of editing some of her brilliant pieces for us, particularly for the Britain's Lost Spaces series. And listeners can go to our Audio Long Reads podcast to listen to her great feature about women's football that she wrote last summer. There's always room for a plug, even in these sentimental endings. So we'll know she'll be amazing in her next role and we wish her the best of luck. And may she never have to work with a presenter with the quality of my home broadband ever again. Um, But perhaps when I finally get some fibre installed, you'll come back to us, May. (laughs) Do you want to say anything? Hello, NS listeners. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. uh, Thank you so much to all of you guys. I'm looking forward to being a listener after this. Yeah, maybe you can finally enjoy the New Statesman podcast. (laughs) You'll probably never want to listen to it again. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues Anisha Kellyan and Zoe Grinewald. We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced for this one final time by the brilliant May Robson. Thank you.